looking to live stronger, longer, and better? Then welcome to Health by Design, hosted by leading healthy living expert and wellness architect, Roar Alexander. After years of traveling and studying around the world, Roar combines his decades of Western health and fitness knowledge with the many time-driven traditions and secrets of the ancient East to bring you only the best in cutting-edge information and special guest interviews that will have you feeling great, losing weight, and finally grabbing a hold of everything you want out of life. So if you're ready to take control of your body, health, and mind, then it's time for Health by Design. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning into this episode of Health by Design. I am your host, healthy living expert and wellness architect, Roar Alexander, and I have a show for you that I've been meaning to get out for such a long time. See, it's like I'm saying that a lot, doesn't it? It's, it's kind of true. Uh, it is very difficult to try to handle uh, you know, a podcast and, and the amount of videos I have to do in editing, plus a job uh, with a kid. Uh, and then, you know, I have the course, the courses are, you know, my Thrive Academy, which I teach. So it, it's a one-man show. It gets very difficult. And quite often I get behind on a lot of things. And the podcast is one thing I'm really trying not to get behind. And the nice thing about this pandemic is I've had time to catch up on it. So uh, I have a great one that I've recorded recently. So if you haven't listened to that one, I believe that was the uh, 10 things that you can do at home. Um right now while you're in quarantine, you know, to live stronger, longer, better. And of course, one of the ones I talked about was listening to podcasts. And here you are. So this is a great time to bring you this podcast I recorded so long ago with Dr. Leonardo Trasande, the author of Sicker, Fatter, Poor, The Urgent Threat of Hormone Disrupting Chemicals to Our Health and Future and What We Can Do About It. Because as we know, my podcast, this podcast, my coaching, everything is about helping you live stronger, longer, and better by empowering your health. And one big major part of your health, of course, is your home and your environment. Setting up your environment for health and fitness success is number one. That's what we have to do. We have to set up. You have to have need a success kitchen. You need a success bedroom. You need a success everything. Everything. You need a success office, right? So... This is a podcast I've wanted to get out for a while. I've had some great authors on here and some great researchers and talking about different ways to improve your home. So, uh, Dr. Leonardo Sunday, I'm just going to read the inside of his book. I'm not going to do a lot of jargon today because this is a podcast that's long overdue. So I just want to get right to it. So uh, from the inside of his book, I just want to read to you. So hopefully it piques your interest. And then I think you'll really enjoy this episode. So not since our stolen future first warned us about hormone disrupting chemicals more than 20 years ago, has there been a book on this subject as important as sicker, fatter, poor, and the news has not improved. And I can promise you the news has probably gotten worse. With stead- that, I added that last part, by the way. With steadily increasing rates of obesity, ADHD, autism, and infertility, it's impossible to avoid the connection between chemicals and disease. In this timely book, Dr. Leonardo Trasande shows us where these chemicals are hiding in our home, food, schools, offices, and countless other places, and reveals the governmental and corporate policies that protect their continued use. Combining scientific detective work with dramatic studies on emerging evidence about the links between chemicals and our health, Dr. Sunday shows us what we can do to protect ourselves and our families in the short term and how we can advance the change we deserve. This is a great book. I definitely suggest getting out there. Um, you know, I've had some other authors on and we've talked about their books as well. So make sure you go back and listen to those podcasts. Um, but this is one that's long overdue. So I do not want to waste a lot of time. Like I said, I recorded this months ago and I want to get right to it because this is such a great topic and it was a really fun conversation. It's not too long either, I think. Uh, I think they, I ended up talking to him for about 30 minutes. So that you guys should be able to get through this in one sitting. So enjoy. 
So everybody, as I said in the intro, I am here with Dr. Leo Trasande. He is a professor at New York University School of Medicine, pediatrician, and the director of the Division of Environmental Pediatrics at New York University School of Medicine, and author of the brand new book, Sicker, Fatter, Poorer. How are you today, Dr. Trasande? I'm doing great, thank you. Excellent. So uh, very, I'd love to thank you for coming on the show. And uh, I know you have a, a hard stop in about 40 minutes. So we'll try to wrap this up and get through as much information as quickly as we can. So let me start first. Um, can you explain the book, Sicker, Fatter, Poor? Um, give us just a quick breakdown of what it is and why you thought it was so important to write this book now. So the past decade has um, brought with it an explosion of science suggesting that chemicals, uh, synthetic chemicals I'm talking about, not naturally derived chemicals, uh, literally scramble our natural molecular signals that are fundamental to temperature, metabolism, salt, sugar, even sex, and thereby contribute to a variety of diseases and disabilities that are also increasing um, that affect us all. This isn't just a mom and baby issue. This is, uh, we're talking about everything from cognitive deficits, ADHD, autism, obesity, diabetes, fibroids, endometriosis, infertility, even certain cancers. Um, and this uh, evidence that has exploded has been documented not just by myself, but by uh, large and reputable scientific and medical organizations like the World Health Organization, United Nations Environment Program, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Endocrine Society, and the International Federation of, on Gynecologists and Obstetricians. I'd like to say that 1% of us know about these chemicals, endocrine-disrupting chemicals, yet they affect 99% of us. And so I felt that this was the time to really get the word out in a way that would be much more effective than, you know, the electronic dust that accumulates on a scientific journal publication. No, that makes complete sense. Um, and that's actually definitely I want to talk on that. Why, you know, such a big topic is really much not talked about a lot. I mean, you know, if you're in this circle, kind of like I am, you're into this kind of wellness circle and stuff like that, but we'll talk about that in a minute. I want to get back to that. But let's start first about where do these toxins come from and why are they such a problem now? Why have we not heard about these like in the 90s, the 80s? Like why, why is it such a big problem now? Right. So there are a thousand synthetic chemicals that are now known to scramble these molecular signals and thereby contribute to disease. The evidence is greatest for four categories of chemicals. Uh, there are phthalates that are used uh, in personal care products, cosmetics and food packaging, bisphenols, which are used in aluminum can linings and thermal paper receipts, and the flame retardants that are used in electronics, furniture, um, and not to mention the pesticides that are used in agriculture. Um, as I said earlier, the reason that we haven't heard about this before is that the science is so new. The Endocrine Society first documented concerns about this in 2009 in its first scientific statement on the matter. The World Health Organization wrote its first report in 2012. The American Academy of Pediatrics wrote a report on chemicals added intentionally or unintentionally into foods back in 2018, just a year ago. So the science literally has been piling up so rapidly over the past few years. The second Endocrine Society scientific statement, normally you don't write a second scientific statement six years after the first, but that's how fast the evidence was accelerating with 1,331 scientific references. 
uh, documenting even greater effects specifically in the human body as opposed to in the laboratory. So again, the science has really accelerated such that this is a really mature and serious issue that affects us all. Mm -hmm. Now, you're a pediatrician. Did you like how did you decide like what brought this discussion of to um, toxins kind of to you? Were you seeing problems with children or just seeing problems across the board? Uh, like what brought you into in particular into really wanting to focus on this? Sure. So I've been trained as a pediatrician, but I also came into the field of environmental health through the world of health policy. Um, I spent a year between uh, my residency and my uh, specialty training uh, working for then Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton on children's and environmental health issues. And that's what really opened my eyes to the notion that factors contribute so much to disease and disability. Then I got some specific training in environmental health and started a career mostly focused on chemicals that affect kids and not just the consequences for human health, but the consequences for our broader economy. Then a few years ago, I was asked to advise the European Union on the cost of these endocrine disrupting chemicals in Europe. And you might wonder why Europe, and I'll get there in a minute. But we found that a variety of diseases across the lifespan have substantial evidence for their contribution by these chemical exposures that scramble our natural molecular signals and affect us, including consequences that are life and death. Um, we found that the costs of these exposures are 163 billion euro. That's $209 billion a year. That's 1.2% of the gross domestic product. Um, all the diseases I talked about earlier are in that cost number. So this isn't just something that's affecting kids. It's affecting us all. So as a pediatrician, a dad, and, and frankly, most importantly, as an American, given how all of us are affected by this, I went back and did this estimate again in the U.S., and the costs were even higher, $340 billion. That's 2.3% of our gross domestic product, and that's an annual cost, and that's only based on less than 5% of known endocrine-disrupting chemicals, a subset of diseases due to those endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and a subset of costs due to those diseases, due to those chemicals. So we're talking about a huge underestimate of an underestimate of an underestimate. And it's an annual cost insofar as these exposures continue each year. Now, how are we going to start to tackle this? So then we'll get back to that. Let's start with this. A lot of people may be listening and they don't even know what an endocrine disruptor is. You've said that a number of times. Could you explain what an endocrine disruptor is and why that matters to us? Like what these problem, like what is the problem these chemicals are causing? So hormones are our natural molecular signals. Um, they are our traffic um, communicators. They are so fundamental to everything from temperature to metabolism, salt, sugar, even sex. And they're natural molecules. What we're talking about when we're talking about endocrine disrupting chemicals are synthetic chemicals that scramble those molecular signals and thereby contribute to disease and disability. Hmm. Now, in your book, you wrote about following the hormonal clues. Can you tell it like what what sort of clues were you starting to follow? What have you started to see that these endocrine disruptors are doing? Like, are there any major trends that we can see happening right now? So the science first came from animals and tissues. 
Um, but the studies were mostly of large-scale exposures, even going back to Silent Spring in the 1960s when Rachel Carson described the effects of DDT, a pesticide that's now banned uh, in most developed countries, uh, and their impacts on wildlife. And then in the 1970s, a pharmaceutical called diethylstilbestrol that was found um, to induce cancers in young girls when pregnant women took it to prolong pregnancy it was one of the medicines used in pregnant women to prevent preterm labor in the 1940s and 1950s. So those were the early signals, but those were large-scale exposures or what we might call so-called so mistake chemicals. Now we know, first from the laboratory and then from human studies, that these are chemicals that occur in all sorts of uses and products in our daily lives. We're talking about food packaging that you use in your daily life, aluminum cans that you might drink a soda out of or have your beans out of in, in the afternoon for lunch. We're talking about pesticides that are found in conventional foods. These are chemicals commonly used in all sorts of aspects of daily life that people don't recognize, but are really impacting their lives in a way that can have consequences for many years to come. And in particular, the science has told us that lower levels of these chemicals are having the same kinds of impacts that we used to think were just happening at higher levels of exposure. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because there's the um, <clears throat> there's the old saying the dose makes the poison. Uh, yet in your book, you were saying that's you know it's pretty much wrong in a lot of these cases. So, um, how the, how small are we talking about that can actually make changes? Because a lot of the times, you know, you talk to people about this, and you know, a lot of people are convinced that you have to have large amounts of these things to make a difference. Yet, you know, according to your book and quite a few other sources, small amounts can make very large differences. So I, I want to use an example of lead, which is not typically on the list of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, um, and we've known about it for a hundred and some odd years. The more the research comes in, the more we realize that the lower and lower we go, the effects are still being identified, such that there's no safe level of lead exposure. And actually, the lowest levels of exposure are where you get the biggest effects. That is, the, when you go from zero to one, that's a bigger impact than going from nine to 10 in the levels of exposure. It's called nonlinear types of effects, where the effects are steeper than straight lines and then straighten out over the larger levels of exposure that we're used to thinking about. We now know that's true, not just for lead, but mercury, pesticides, flame retardants, um, among a host of other chemicals, and in particular, it should make common sense because hormones, basic natural uh, chemicals that our body uses to signal, also don't follow those same straight line kind of relationships. And it's not that the dose never makes the poison. It's not that the dose doesn't make the poison. The dose doesn't always make the poison. Timing matters. Other exposures matter. And what we're realizing is that our conventional way of deciding what's safe is fundamentally flawed. That's really what this is all about. Regulators for a long time used to think that you could anticipate effects based upon high dose exposures. 
now we know that you, you the lower you go, things could go up and things could go down with regard to the effects of chemical exposures. It may actually be that lower levels of exposure actually are more harmful than medium levels of exposure. There's this whole science of non-monotonicity where it's more like a roller coaster ride than a straight line. We typically think of exposure and response as straightforward straight lines. But we now know that it can go up and then it can go down. And there are mechanisms in cells that explain all of this in elegantly detailed experiments. So this isn't just hypothetical or fear-mongering kind of initiatives. These are peer-reviewed academic studies that are suggesting that we need to shift the paradigm in a fundamental way. And so how do you see that happening? Because it just seems like, you know, you can read the back of say like, um, I'll just, I'm gonna pick on L'Oreal makeup for a minute because they're the biggest makeup people in the world. And, you know, there I was just looking at even just the hair gel yesterday and there's like parabens in it. There's perfumes. Um, there's just so it's it's I just it's hard to imagine how we're going to start to change the tide, because, like I said, this isn't a common thing that most people are talking about. I guess, you know, part of it has to do a lot with the you said that even one of the studies just came out last year. But how do you see us making a change? I mean, everything comes wrapped in plastic and, and styrofoam. It just seems like a very uphill battle. So there are safe and simple steps we can all take right now to reduce our exposure with benefits in the short, medium, and long term. Let's talk about the steps you can take. So avoiding canned food is a straight way to avoid BPA exposure. By the way, the non-BPA linings that you're starting to see are, are BPA-free mm -hmm. cans. Their problems because there are 40 or so artists formerly known as BPA, like to call them, BPS, BPF, BPP, etc. You don't have to get boggled down in the basic chemistry. You don't need an undergraduate or even a PhD chemistry to, to figure this out. Just avoid canned foods because those replacements are increasingly being found to be as estrogenic, as toxic to embryos, and as persistent in the environment. So... In addition, saying no to that thermal paper receipt and taking an e-receipt is a great way to mitigate your exposure to bisphenols as well because those that glossy layer to the thermal paper receipt, it absorbs onto your skin and into your body directly without having to take it through your mouth. Um, in addition, eating organic used to be something I wouldn't even suggest to uh, low-income populations. I work at Bellevue Hospital, which is the, the flagship of the public hospital system in New York City. And we actually now suggest it because the price margins have plummeted. It used to be that organic was like a 1% or less market share. But we've seen a double-digit basis in organic foods compared to conventional, which is flat. And what that's done is it's brought the price down such that even the big box stores are bringing this online. By the way, the um, there is a so-called dirty dozen. There are certain high priority fruits and vegetables where eating organic is giving, gives you the biggest bang for your buck. Um, these are the leafy greens and vegetables where you eat that outer layer ultimately. And you know, whereas an avocado, it may not be as a big a deal. Um, and studies have shown in kids that you can decrease levels of pesticides, whether you're in a low-income population or a high-income population. In addition, just opening the window and recirculating the air 
gets rid of some of these flame retardant and persistent organic pollutants that accumulate in dust from electronics, furniture, even carpeting. You don't have to throw out all your furniture. The um, flame retardants that are sprayed in into upholstery, um, they don't get out unless they're obviously etched or scratched or there's some kind of fraying in the outer layer. If they do get torn, you at least want to put a, uh, some kind of natural fiber cover on there to mitigate the dust accumulation or maybe consider uh, getting rid of it. Okay. Um, and then for the phthalates, which gets to your cosmetic question, um, let's talk first about the food packaging. So minding your plastic. There's this notion of, of microwave safe plastic, which is a bit flawed because really it's only for gross misshaping or warping of plastic that that label is safe. Mm -hmm. At a microscopic level, the polymer breaks down to monomers, and then there are additives that automatically get into food from just basic contact with the food packaging. And heat and machine dishwashing plastic exacerbates that and ultimately facilitates absorption into food and into human bodies. Also, watching the recycling number on a plastic bottle is important. The numbers three, six, and seven are the ones to avoid across the board. Three is for phthalates, six is for styrene, a known carcinogen, and seven is for the bisphenols that I've already talked about. Okay. Um, and there are some good apps now that can give you guidance about what personal care products are good. Environmental Working Group has an app that either is called Skin Deep or Healthy Living, depending on what version you use. Mm -hmm. And that app gives you guidance about particular individual products. The things to watch out for if you really don't have that handy or don't have um, a cell connection are for fragrances and phthalates, anything with PHTH. So fragrances are this catch-all loophole through which a lot of chemicals have been assumed to be safe, but actually haven't been properly tested. I'm not saying all of them are unsafe. It's just that we don't know chiefly with many of these chemicals that are added. And then phthalates we've talked about pretty extensively. Hmm. Let's talk then about kids in particular. Um, are they more susceptible? Like, is this is are they more susceptible acceptable to these sorts of chemicals? Like, is there anything special about kids? I, and for instance, I was talking to a specialist the other day on EMFs, and he was right. talking about children's uh, skulls are thinner. Um, and I imagine the kids, you know, probably have more delicate hormones to a point because they're growing up. You know, their brains are forming. Like, what sort of awareness do we have to have, especially when it comes to kids? And maybe what sort of products we should use or should not use? I've read a study about um, where they use clean products in a home and the kids that the parents use like Lysol and stuff like that actually were heavier than the kid parents who use natural cleaners like what do we have to be concerned about when it comes to kids so kids are uniquely vulnerable for a number of reasons they eat more uh, drink more and inhale more per body weight so they have a greater exposure pound for pound they also have developing organ systems that can be disrupted even by an early life exposure for example you can't rewire a child's brain development the same is true for so many organ systems so when you disrupt that normal development process you can't recoup it after the fact. And so the effects of early life exposures can be permanent and lifelong. And ultimately, kids also have more years of life in which to manifest these kinds of conditions in the first place. So there are multiple reasons why kids are uniquely vulnerable. Gotcha. Let me ask you something we haven't talked about yet. And I, I've read your book actually a couple of times, and I think you mentioned it, but don't look into a lot of detail. But artificial sweeteners, do those, did you talk about those in your book? Or are they something, are they a different kind of category? 
No, they're they're in the category of chemicals of concern. The evidence there is much thinner. So I focus in the book on the chemicals where we've got the most information, lowest hanging fruit, if you will. Um, there is a side benefit with eating organic, by the way, is that you avoid a lot of these artificial synthetic chemicals, sweeteners, and things. They're just not allowed under the Organic Trade Association agreement with the USDA organic label. Um, but the evidence on, in particular, suggests that a variety of chemicals that are generally recognized as safe, that's a loophole on the food side that many food manufacturers use to add synthetic chemicals that haven't been thoroughly tested. What little we're starting to find out is raising concern about these chemicals that are intentionally or unintentionally added to foods. The evidence for artificial food colorings and sweeteners is much weaker. So I can't tell you with you know any definitive way compared to what I could say about flame retardants or pesticides or bisphenols or phthalates that there are specific health effects that can be traced directly to those additional food additives. However, there are concerns and we do need a stronger framework for identifying what those chemicals are and really testing them properly. Hmm. Um, very interesting. Now, a couple of weeks ago, too, there was a study that came out about um, tanning lotions or sunblock. Did you happen to catch up on that one? Um, was, sunblock, was sunblock mentioned in your book? I'm trying to remember because I know that has quite a few chemicals in it. They talk about that. Now, they talk about more, I believe, in the carcinogen area, and which I'd also like to ask you the difference between uh, carcinogens and endocrine disruptors, too. But So uh, there's a concern put, by, put forth by a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association that normal use of certain sunscreens actually brings up your level of uh, certain sunscreen chemicals, synthetic chemicals like oxybenzone that may have uh, disruptive effects on, on puberty, among other consequences. So that was not an expected result. The concern was uh, that the exposure to these chemicals should not be, the use of these chemicals should not be resulting in detectable levels in blood, for example, yet they found them. Um, that's, I think, the study you're talking about. We do talk about sunscreens a fair bit in the book. I mean, Obviously, sun safety is crucial, but there are titanium and zinc-based materials, literally, where you can see the sunblock on the skin that don't present the same risks. Gotcha. Now, are any of these chemicals that we've talked about, are any of those considered carcinogens so far? And could you explain kind of what a carcinogen is? Um, just because those are the two terms you hear a lot. You hear about chemicals and carcinogens and chemicals and endocrine disruptors. Could we just kind of talk about those two? Right. You have the possibility of having endocrine cancers like breast and ovarian and prostate that cover both. They result from endocrine disruption uh, because they induce cancer. They induce uncontrolled growth in cells. Okay. So you can have some chemicals that are both. The evidence for, let's say, breast cancer in these chemicals is limited. Mostly it's some of the oldest chemicals used, like the DDTs of the world, um, some of the persistent organic pollutants that have been linked to, for example, breast cancer. And in the case of certain old, very old chemicals that come out also of burning plastic dioxins. Uh, that have been linked to a variety of endocrine cancers. But there are other cancers that are not the result of the endocrine system, and they don't res result from endocrine-related mechanisms. So those wouldn't be endocrine disruptors, but they can induce carcinogens, like tobacco and its role in lung cancer. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. Thank you. 
Um, now, can we talk a minute about, I'd like to get back to one of the, the big ones I saw in this. You talked about obesogens. Can we talk about what is an obesogen and how does that work? Because you know, normally we hear about calories in versus calories out, but the obesogen theory is basically kind of showing us that, you know, maybe there's a little more going on than just calories in and calories out and, you know, eating clean and exercising. Right. There's an special acceleration in the evidence of the, um, of the role of synthetic chemicals contributing to obesity, literally making us fatter. There are 50 some so-called obesogens that are known. The prototype is bisphenol A or BPA. BPA makes fat cells bigger, disrupts the function of a protein that protects the heart called adiponectin, and it's a known synthetic estrogen. It can have sex-specific effects on body mass, especially during vulnerable windows such as puberty. But it's not the only group of chemicals that are known. Now, none of this suggests that diet and physical activity aren't the major drivers of the obesity epidemic, but we're recognizing that synthetic chemicals disrupt hormones and are an important third factor. So for example, the perfluoroalkyl substances, the Teflon-like chemicals that are used in nonstick cooking materials, they in one study have been found to increase weight gain after in folks who've actually lost weight through healthy diet and physical activity. And that's because they slow the body's metabolism. It's almost like turning the thermostat on the wrong way and inducing cooling when it should be inducing burning of fuel. The phthalates also disrupt how calories are processed because of the way they change how genes are expressed, literally shifting calories into fat as opposed to um, and sugar as opposed to protein. Hmm. Wow, that is very interesting. Yeah, I'd, re- I'd read a study recently, or at least I don't know if it was a study, it was a quote, but they were talking about Basically, they took a man from, uh, what was it, about 2017, I think, they compared it to the same calorie and activity expenditure of a man from the 1980s, and the, the modern man had a harder time losing weight than the man from the 80s. So uh, it just goes to show this. There's definitely some interesting stuff going on. Now, I guess there would also probably be some talk in the, I know that there's some talk in the gut health as well. Um, do these chemicals affect the gut biome in any way? That's where the science really has to start to catch up. There are these microbes are literally cells or packages of cells, organisms that can metabolize these chemicals and may actually make chemicals worse or detoxify chemicals for their effects. So the reality is that the effects of these chemicals go both ways. It may also be that chemicals mess with healthy microbes and actually contribute to obesity that way and other conditions that way. So this is a weird scenario where you have not just the human cells being disrupted, but you have other cells in the, in, in the body that may enhance the effects of chemicals on human health and vice versa. Hmm. Now, let me ask you a question. We're going to go the opposite direction now from obesity. And I'd like to talk about the... Um, we are in a time now where there seems to be a lot of fertility issues. You see, you just seem to be a lot of people are having a harder time getting pregnant. And quite often, you know, the, the conversation aims more towards the women. But you talk about men a lot in your book, which I found really great. It was kind of refreshing to say, hey, man, you're almost you're pretty much, you know, just a, to blame for the fertility issue, you know. So can we talk about some of the statistics that we've seen in men and fertility and testosterone and stuff like that? We've seen over the past 70 years, first 35 years ago, and then over the past 35 years, constant declines in sperm count among adult men. And we know that synthetic chemicals can 
have been associated with decreases in sperm count, literally contributing to increases in infertility and the need for assisted reproductive technologies. Studies have found that phthalate exposures in couples trying to conceive have actually slowed their time to pregnancy, increasing the odds of needing assisted reproductive uh, technologies. We know that phthalates can do this by messing with testosterone. And testosterone, by the way, is also important not just for sperm count, but for libido. So potency can be a concern as well that's important. But it's not just the lifestyle matter. It's also literally a life or death matter. Testosterone or low T has been associated with cardiovascular disease and stroke. And we've identified 10,000 adult men in the United States each year that die because of early cardiovascular mortality due to phthalates. Again, diet and physical activity are the major drivers of all this, mm -hmm. but the reality is that there are synthetic chemicals that can scramble hormones and be an important and manageable third factor. Yeah, and the problem too is there's a lot of the diet foods out there um, and a lot of the, you know, the, the things that they promote to the health or the fitness conscious people tend to have a lot of, like we mentioned artificial sweeteners. There's not a lot of, you know, there's some back and forth there, but there's artificial sweeteners, you know, there's colors in there. Um, there just seems to be a lot of junk, unfortunately, in a lot of the health foods and stuff too, which is too bad. But let me just uh, get, just finally, what are some of the issues you found with women in fertility? I know you've mentioned a couple kind of in passing, but any major ones that have kind of stuck out before we wrap up? So we, what little we know suggests that chemicals can mess with the ovary, in particular bisphenols, uh, can contribute to a variety of ovarian dysfunctions. But the, the other concern relates to endometriosis and fibroid. There are studies that have identified in humans specific effects of these chemicals on increasing risk for these disabling conditions that affect so many women. And we're searching for answers to understand what we can do to prevent these conditions. And there are very few available uh, options other than treatment right now. And that's one of the sets of concerns. The other is that um, these chemicals could literally be messing with puberty and the timing of puberty. We've seen a leapfrog forward in timing of puberty. And early puberty is well known as a major risk factor for breast cancer. So these chemicals can have a various and sundry effects on women across all ages and stages as well. Hmm. So in wrapping up here then, let me ask you, what can we do? And you kind of mentioned this, or we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what are some of the steps we can take starting today? Maybe some of the biggest steps you can think of that'll make the biggest differences that we can start doing in our homes today, right now. Is it, you know, getting rid of the, the toxic cleaners for the kids? The, where, where should we start? Again, there are these safe and simple steps that I've already talked about. The biggest ones that I focused on are avoiding canned foods, avoiding microwaving plastic, avoiding, eat, avoiding eating conventional foods, focusing on eating organic, and simply recirculating the air in the homes. There are other steps that go into more detail, but those are, that's literally the 15 second version. Gotcha. Perfect. Now your book, can people buy, I'm guessing your book is for sale in all bookstores, Amazon, all the regular sort of places. Where else can people follow you? Is there anywhere, do you have a website, an Instagram, anything like that? Sure. Uh, my Instagram and Twitter is Leo Trasande, T-R-A-S-A-N-D-E. And you can go to sickerfatterpoor.com or leotrasande.com for more information. Perfect. Well, I would like to thank you for joining us today and I'll let you go so you can get to uh, your appointments and you have a great day. Thank you again. 
This has been the Health by Design podcast with Canada's leading healthy living expert and wellness architect, Roar Alexander. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to Health by Design through your favorite podcast provider. And then don't forget to join me at www.roaralexander.com to stay up to date with my latest blogs, speaking events, and exclusive interviews with guests from all around the world. While you're there, be sure to check out my coaching options to help you on your own personal health journey, set up your free call, and together, let's see how I can help you starting today. And until next time, remember, I'm here to help you live stronger, longer, and as always, better.